This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and with me today are Taylor Parks and rock expert David Stubbs. Indeed. Boys, before we get stuck into the pop and the interesting things, I have to make an apology to all the pop crazy youngsters out there because this was supposed to be the Christmas episode of chart music and uh, it, and it's not now it's not even the fucking Russian Orthodox Christmas episode of chart music I miss that cunt as well we recorded a bit late in the day didn't we on mm. this one uh, got it all done just before Christmas Eve and I thought oh I'll, I'll go around my mum's for a couple of weeks I'll take my brand new laptop and I'll, I'll do all the editing there and bang it straight out for New Year's Eve and no that didn't happen so on bit be- well, on on behalf of no other fucker but me. It's all my fault. I'm Soz. I'm well Soz, pop crazed youngsters. Can you find it in your heart to forgive me? We're like those cunts on your street who leave their Christmas decorations up in March, aren't we? <laughs> anyway, the pop things, the interesting things. Tell me now. Yeah, it's it's curious, really. Um, I normally I see Christmas as this kind of you know this tunnel of barbed wire that you just have to kind of get through and you know just think about tax returns and all that shit. But um, yeah. I, there was a bit of a sprinkling of the uh, Christmas spirit with me this year. Oh, yeah, you know, I saw um, my little boy Dara. Uh, who's seven? He did his first ever sort of nativity. I say nativity. Oh. It was a sort of nativity scene with Santa Claus heavily involved, which I think theologians would probably quibble about <laughs> a bit. But um, yeah, it was all right. They sang loads of songs and did some Macaton style because he's in a sort of speech and language unit, you know. So they've all got like these little particular needs. He had one line, and that was, I have brought frankincense. And he was doing all right in rehearsals, but I know what a little gitty is. I just had this feeling, we all did on, on the day when, you know, it said, I have brought gold, says the first wise man. And the second wise man Dara just looks at you and says what do you want but he didn't <laughs> he belted it out of the park it was brilliant oh. I brought you frankincense you know it was like Brian blessed like he was addressing oh, the raptors beautiful 10 out of 10 so I've never been to an activity like that before um, uh, probably the last time I was when I was in one well who were you oh, oh I think I was Joseph actually of course it was kind of improv really <laughs> it was like the one in Adrian Mole <laughs> yeah it's probably no, no, myself no. suspended no I'll tell you who I was I, I was the husband the chap you know when they're going around with the stable owners or whatever and there was this other woman over there. I was supposed to be married to her. And she'd actually been made most of the talking. And I just said, yes, now and again. <laughs> we do have a stable around the back. It's not very much. But he went on that. And I'd just say, yes. So, yeah, it wasn't exactly um, Tony Slattery-esque, I suppose. You know, my skill, my and improv d- skills. did you sing rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat? No, no, no. Um, no, no, I'm afraid not. No, no, no. That's, I mean, you know, that, that's uh, the dimmest memories of this. And Dari, you know, he really, you know, it's just like frankincense. I mean, you know, everybody can say myrrh. Myrrh's just a noise. Yeah. But frankincense, I mean, get your laughing gear around that, you know. And I was always like, 
one of the gold Frankenstein and Murr kids, you know, when I was at school. It's so easy to fall back on, isn't it, that one? It is, yeah. Also, um, a few days before Christmas, there was a train strike, and it was his last day as trampoline class, and I had to pick him up in school, and it was a three-hour bus journey covering about oh. seven miles. It, it would actually have been easier to have walked. Okay, just like I was feeling kind of absolutely like shit on a stick. But, you know, mm. finally when he got there into this sports centre where they hold it, they were having their little Christmas party there. I'd sort of snuck in a bottle of Prosecco, and I just, we did a little toast. I just remember a sort of really kind of like an angel getting his wings or something like that. One of those lovely little Christmas moments. They're only fleeting, yeah. but, you know, they, they do last. Did you get pissed up and go, have a go on the trampoline? No, stick? I mean, that, that, that will happen oh, one of these say, years. What kind of human being are you? <laughs> I know, I know, you're, you're quite right, actually. They chuck us out after an hour, fortunately. If it had gone on all evening, I think, then definitely, uh, yeah, there'd have been a lot of swinging and a jumping and a lengthy trip to A&Eing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Taylor, what's pop? What's interesting, baby? Oh, well, Thomas Mann said, a writer <laughs> is someone for whom writing is harder than it is for other people. Manfred Mann said... There she was, just a walking down the street, singing "Do what did he did he dumb did he do?" Cooper man said, "Hey, blunder woman, get a load of this one." It makes you think, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, you know, I've been taking full advantage of London life between the pandemics, which is to say, uh, not having enough money to go out for a drink or to heat my home. So, uh, nice. sitting in a freezing cold flat. Listening to low flying police helicopters, but <laughs> I don't really mind them. It's company for me, innit? If you had a, a little box or something, like, I don't know, a, a tic tac box or a fag packet, you could look out your window and pretend that they're your drones. <laughs> Imagine the fun. Uh, yeah, uh, fun in short supply, maybe. No heating this year, so nah. more authentically Victorian Christmas Into than just. usual. Uh, and uh, a nice, lively game of Snapdragon you know some especially energetic charades uh nothing in my stocking but an orange and a walnut oh. and a wind-up toy mouse got myself a christmas present got a, a rare album of Bacharach and david songs very oh. rare it's the songs where but Bacharach wrote the lyrics and hal david wrote the music <laughs> it's terrible it's, I, they definitely got it the right way round the mm. way they normally did it that, that's like that tommy cooper joke isn't it now what you got there is a Stradivarius and a Rembrandt. Unfortunately, <laughs> Stradivarius was a terrible painter and Rembrandt made rotten violins. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it has been previously done better, yes. <laughs> yeah, thanks, David. Sorry. Other than that, uh, what else have I been doing? I watched some more Triangle. Hey, tell Out me. Out of the way, fish. Here it comes. Uh, so, yet more steel grey watery horizons Ooh. and characters called things like Arthur Parker. And Barbara Carter. Best thing that's happened lately is the ship stopped to pick up some lost Russian sailors oh. whose enthusiasm for the uh, the West and wretched tales of their homeland mm. uh, taught quite a lesson to the dogmatic young communist engineer who uh, <laughs> previously appeared to believe that the Eastern Bloc was like Beverly Hills, but for everyone. Because um, Triangle takes a similar approach to class consciousness as uh, carry on at your convenience. Mm. But then, when I've grown weary of the middle brow and want to really dive like one of those submersibles from the blue planet mm. descending into the mariana trench of western culture <laughs> in search of the most bizarre and 
hideous HR giga fish. I've also been on YouTube watching the Australian remake of Love Thy Neighbour. Oh! Um, have you seen this? Love Thy Australian Neighbour. I've seen bits of it, yes. This was a traditional move in the old days when your show had worn itself out. Mm. You could go to Australia yeah. and star in the Australian remake, made for people who'd already seen the British version but were still thrilled to have you over there doing it all over again, mm. but cheaper and worse. John Inman did it. Yes. Appeared in the Australian IUB and served. Obviously, the most famous or notorious one is Tony Hancock, mm. who went over there to make Australian Hancock's Half Hour and almost instantly topped himself. <laughs> yeah. um, Steptoe did it as well. Yeah. But it's a little-known fact. Jack Smethurst also took that long, long flight yes. and appeared in Australian version Love Thy Neighbour. And when you compare it to the British Love Thy Neighbour... Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The good <laughs> news is that they flip the concept. So now Eddie Booth is the foreigner. Mm. He's the immigrant next door. Yes. And his macho Aussie neighbour thinks he's a whinging pommy layabout. Mm. So it's slightly easier to watch without the barrage of racist language. Mm. But the bad news is this means there are now no black people in the show at all. <laughs> Thanks to the white Australia policy, we have an all-white cast, which... <laughs> isn't so progressive and it makes the program kind of pointless and they only got one episode out of the cultural differences between england and australia which is meant to be the point of the thing because the writing is so uninspired they can't even get original ideas out of that or aboriginal ideas either yeah they didn't dare so by halfway through the series they're they're doing gay panic storylines and even before that they were already reduced by episode three to creep up behind burglar and clonk him over the head but it turns out it's not a burglar there's not a single new joke in sight but it's almost vaguely interesting to watch at least next week on the ugandan buses starring (laughs) reg farney and joseph adongo Um, and you'll be watching it won't you taylor well i mean what else am i gonna do (laughs) try Actually, I was thinking as a money-making scheme, you know those dinner nights based on Only Fools and Horses or Faulty Towers where, like, non-lookalikes walk around dressed as Del Boy or Basil Foley and you eat your dinner in this UK gold tribute band ambience. Well, don't you think a really shrewd operator would start one of those based on Love Thy Neighbour? Yes. I think it would be a big hit with the target demographic, (laughs) despite the inevitable elitist whining and (laughs) virtue signalling of the the so-called non-racist errati. It's either that or set up a cable channel called Great British Telly, which is just an endless montage of two-second clips of every time David Jason, in early series of Only Fools and Horses, used an unpleasant term for an Asian grocer's. Mm. Just all of those edited together, looped and repeated 24 hours a day with the audio playing twice, overlapping and (laughs) going in and out of sync like a Steve Reich tape composition. Just that, interspersed with videos of The Who all day. And if the BBC set up BBC Nine and just broadcast that forever, 
I tell you, all those triple lock cunts would soon stop moaning about the licence fee. Mm. Christ alive, I had to watch a lot of Rub Thy Neighbour for this book that I've just about finished. And, uh, oh dear me. I mean, it's, it's just so <laughs> awful things. The weird thing about it is that Smethers will say, like, Nignog, and of course, you know, Rudolph Walker comes back with Honky. And it's as if to imply that there's kind of a parody. Oh, yeah, that's just as bad, isn't it? Honky. Mm. Yeah. Because, yeah, I remember as a white kid, you know, being called a honky so often and how damaging that was, you know, to my yeah. sort of sense of self esteem and what have you. Maybe he was just talking about his favourite. Southampton funk band though David (laughs) (laughs) it's always disappointing Christmas at home when you're not a family man you know makes you long for the days when ordinary humans could go on holiday do you remember that you could spend your Christmas in an alpine fantasia Mm. pulled through the streets of Grindelwald on a fairy lit reindeer sleigh (laughs) on Christmas Eve be nice. Have you ever been to Switzerland? Yeah, I've been, yeah, quite a few times. Not at Christmas, yeah. though. Yeah. Have you, are you fucking David Bowie or summer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I summered rather than wintered in Switzerland. It's an incredibly great and incredibly terrible place. Mm. Right? Every time I've been there, I've felt enormously You've comfortable. You've been to Switzerland as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Am I the only person who hasn't been to Switzerland? That's right. It appears so, yeah. Fuck's yeah. sake. Yeah. Well, it's the young gods and yellow and all that, you know. So we're uh, always sort of trotting over there. I've never been to me either. Fucking <laughs> hell, what a shit life I've had. But listen, what it is, you go there and you feel comfortable because almost everything about the, the rural or the alpine areas of Switzerland it's kept exactly as it was in 1926. Right. It's so laughably beautiful and so exactly what you'd expect from storybooks and sappy films. And personally, that countryside and those old buildings stirs some real emotion in me. I hope it doesn't make me a literal Nazi. But <laughs> being in a picturesque, old-timey European setting does feel very comfortable to me, even being so close to all that gold and all those paintings. Mm. And... All that aside, the terrible truth is that it's genuinely wonderful to have a place in Europe that is still sealed in the olden days and feels like a century ago. But the price you pay for that is that it's not a real country. It's like a middle Europa theme park. Mm. Because to keep a European country in that state indefinitely... First of all, you have to forcibly stop it from developing naturally, Mm. and then you also have to fund this somehow. So the payback for the preservation of this beautiful place is that you walk down the high street of any of these picture book alpine towns and in between the fondue restaurants and the chocolate shops it's all jimmy chews and louis vuitton and Mm, prada uh, because they've all become playpens for the well for the very rich but not quite super rich Mm. and the price you pay is that the cities in switzerland are the most boring cities on earth because they're just money and business towns they're only there to keep the billions of swiss francs churning Mm, to subsidize this vast expanse of beauty and the major price that you pay is you become a country with absolutely no culture which is also pretty racist apart from the young gods oh, apart from the young gods yeah yeah, yeah and a few other things in the 21st century there's no way you can have a place like switzerland without mm. all that also being the case so i think it's probably good to have one place like that in europe or two if you count Liechtenstein, which is switzerland taken to its logical conclusion and it would be awful to lose it but the reality is fucking creepy and unnerving 
as well as being the loveliest place I've ever mm. seen that isn't a tropical or arctic archipelago. But I think that, you know, liking the tinkling of cowbells doesn't make you a national socialist, um, really. But um, <laughs> but having said that, it's yeah, first it is. Step. Fucking hell, it is. Yeah, Hitler never about. said more cowbell, did he? <laughs> I used to watch Ski Sunday and mm. I just feel the the jackboots bursting out. Goose stepping across to switch it to BBC Two. Yeah. Yeah, with blue eyes lighting up. From it's bloody the expensive. The last time I went to Switzerland, I went to Gestad, to some luxury You've hotel. You've been to Switzerland more than what, for fuck's sake? I know, I know. This was actually with a friend who was on a, some, some sort of jolly to this hotel, but a, a glass of wine has set you back 20 quid. Oh. People living in Geneva would cross the border to France to do their shopping. Was this the Gestad Palace Hotel? I think it might have been. Yeah, I was looking at the menu of that online the other day and quite frankly 60 quid for the grilled beef olivette Mm. with sautéed potatoes and perigordian juice Mm. and i bet you could fit it in the palm of your hand Mm. pathetic and i say what i hope you don't like sea bass unless your surname is monopoly (laughs) Mm. well goodbye to all our swiss listeners there <laughs> i just think it's a shame that for the pop craze patreons we didn't have time to do like what nationwide or blue peter or all-star record breakers would do and put on a little pantomime for oh Christmas. maybe next year taylor <laughs> because at this spooky time of year thoughts turn inevitably to pantomime because everyone goes to one every year don't they mm, oh yeah it's like what christmas would be complete without a 32-year-old woman in green type <laughs> and a three-cornered hat. <laughs> I went to one once in Birmingham where there was a flight of stairs leading down from the front of the stage into the orchestra pit. Right. And I remember when the pantomime horse came on and stood a bit too close to it, really, really wanting to see the pantomime horse fall down the stairs, <laughs> not out of any particular ill will, mm. but just because if a pantomime horse fell down a flight of stairs, I can't imagine the patterns it would make. <laughs> Have you ever been in a pantomime horse? No. Nope. Oh, fucking hell, I've never been to Switzerland. I've never been in a pantomime horse. <laughs> fucking hell, this entire episode is about belittling me and my, my meagre achievements in life. I mean... If it was you and me, Al, I mean, you know, you haven't been to me, but at least you'd have been to me if we'd have been in a pantomime horse together, you know. If David and I were in a pantomime horse, David, who would you put at the front? I'm sorry, Al, but I, I just have to. I get claustrophobic. <laughs> but this is it, right? What are you saying about my arse, David? <laughs> no, this is precisely what I was thinking about. Mm. I, I'm sort of fascinated. I don't know if there's some rule which determines who goes up front yeah. and, and who brings up the rear. Mm. I don't know whether there are front guys and back guys and that's their speciality yeah and the back guys are proud of it like power bottoms (laughs) or whether it just comes down to seniority or who grabs the suit first Mm. you know and do they get paid the same i don't think they should right because i mean look what if the pantomime was going on and a loose stallion burst into the theatre unexpectedly. Ah, I see where you're going. Galloped onto the stage. Uh, Bummer horse. Mounted the pantomime horse. The man in the front would be having by far the better time, I think, but he'd also have the greater responsibility Mm. to do something about Mm. it. Mm. So, you know, I presume that if that happened (laughs) in that crisis scenario... Mm. 
while the bloke at the back was screaming, the bloke in the front would shit into his screaming mouth. <laughs> um, just to establish mm. the hierarchy yeah. within the horse. Mm. Because without that hierarchy, all you would have is chaos. So he'd be shitting out of malice or fear? <laughs> you just got to lay down some principles. Yeah. All right, and I'm going to chuck out some duos. You tell me which one of the two's at the back of the horse. Okay, wham. Well, you know, come on, yeah, we know this one. I mean, he's barely at the back of the horse, is old Andrew. <laughs> the tail, really. Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, well, there's a height issue here, isn't there? Mm. Despite the fact that Paul Simon wrote all the songs, I think you'd have to put art up the front, really. I mean, there's his head and all that. Yeah, there's a sense in which their recording of Bridge Over Troubled Water is like a pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Liam and Noel Gallagher. <sighs> oh, I think what you'd have is like a horse-shaped bag <laughs> with like a lot of sort of bulges mm. coming out at different areas like a Beano fight cloud. <laughs> Peters and Lee. Well, yeah. <laughs> you see, I think that we've established that Lenny Peters in the past is not the most sort of progressive of thinkers. <laughs> and so I think that despite his, his, his blindness, he might nonetheless insist that as the bloke, you know, he gets to go at the front. <laughs> With disastrous consequences. Oh, down the stairs, though, we'd get to see that. Mm. Liz Kershaw and Bruno Brooks. <laughs> They're both at the back. Surely that must be possible in some How about this one? Mr. Ed and Hercules from Steptoe and Son. Oh, and can I add to that, Taylor, and modify it a bit? Yeah. Hercules and Mr. Ed trying to get into the pictures with a big long overcoat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mr. Ed's going to talk, isn't he? So he's he's going to be at the top. Yeah, obviously, yeah. yeah that's a no-brainer, really. He says yeah. one in the stalls and tries to pass over some money whilst forgetting he hasn't got opposable thumbs or anything. <laughs> Speaking of chaos, by the way, since the last time we were here, have we all got that excited new monarch feeling? Oh, yes. It's lovely, isn't it? Mm. My only concern is... How's King Charles going to manage now that he can't ask Jimmy Savile for advice about everything <laughs> yes. like he did for 35 years? I know. I, I know. fear that as a nation we may be lost without that power behind the throne. Mm. <laughs> mm. He's going to have a problem, um, is old King Charles, because the thing about the Queen is that by virtue of like doing nothing and saying nothing effectively uh, in terms of public life, people could just project whatever they wanted onto her and they could project these kind of rather sort of virtuous, saintly, otherworldly, wise, shrewd woman. But of course, Prince Charles has spent most of his life saying loads and doing loads, so he's a bit sort of demystified, really, and I think that's, that's going to be his major problem. Well, it'll probably be a, a shortish reign, I would imagine. But anyway, before we go any further, you know how we go about at this point, because I have come to tell thee of all the newborn Patreon subscribers to see Pum. <laughs> In the $5 section this week, we have James Shooter, Emily Grant, Johnny M, Michael Avery, Emma Murray, Tim Ward, Joe O'Donnell, Dave Valentine, Jason Brannigan, Ian Robertson, Robert Oliver, Ted H, Paul Braithwaite, Tina Boffin, Michael Cook, Nacho Vidal, K 
Colonel Nuts, Richard, open brackets, Levi, everybody wants to be a cat, porridge, selection box, please, please, may pip it from Jaws, 221B Baker Street, close brackets, and the return of someone who chooses to call themselves Leicester is better than Nottingham. Oh, the, the real Nacho Vidal. Surprised he's got time. Mm. And in the $3 section, we have Simon Mulvaney, Killian Foley, John Bennett, and Steve Hughes. Oh, babies, we love you so. Yeah. These guys rock! <laughs> and Mark Savage, Daniel Sullivan, and Doug Grant jacked their contributions right up which means they get to go into the private room with me and watch me oil up my breasts and mash them like they were (laughs) play-doh and it goes without saying that this episode is dedicated to all the pop craze patreons who have put a jingle in our g-string this year fucking hell you're amazing your lot excellent we think you're lush great people and as well as getting this episode in full without any rubbish advert bollocks ages before everyone else the pop craze patreons get the opportunity to prize open the back door of the record shop grab that chart return book and fiddle with it like a bastard in order to rig the chart music christmas top 10 oh my god are you ready boys hit the fucking music We've said goodbye to Jeff Sex, Legs and Cunner, Crosby Stills Nash and Glitter, and my fucking car, which means none up, five down, one non-mover, one re-entry, and three new entries. A former number one, now down seven places to number ten, the Airbnb 52s. It's a new entry at number nine for Dag Vadge. <laughs> Re-entry at number eight, rock expert David Styles. No change at number seven, for here comes And it's a one-place drop from number five to number six for the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. (laughs) Into the top five and it's a one-place drop for Bomber Dog. Straight into the chart at number four, the Nagasaki Hell Blaster. (laughs) Down from number two to number three for Eric Smallshore of Eccles. Last week's number one has dropped one place to number two, the provisional URURA, which means... It could only be the highest new entry and the chart music Christmas number one of 2022, the Birmingham Piss Troll. Oh, Oh, what a chart, boys. Represent. (laughs) So, the new entries, chaps. Dag Vadge. Well, we know they're a Swedish band whose name I've completely mispronounced, but it sounds better that way. Mm. Uh. Kind of Swedish reggae. (laughs) <laughs> Not as good as Finnish reggae. What's his name? Ricky Scorza mm. in the Eurovision Song Contest in 1981. Reggae, okay. <laughs> you know that one, don't you, David? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, about time the accordion was introduced to the cultural mix of reggae, don't you think? Definitely, yeah. I think there's nothing like skanking along to a bit of accordion. <laughs> the Nagasaki Hell Blaster. Well, you know, mm. th- th- there's only three words that sprang to mind when I heard 
him. That's called thrash. <laughs> yeah. And the Birmingham piss troll. What does that sound like? Yeah. The do they know it's Christmas of this chart. <laughs> Probably surprisingly avant-garde, actually. So if you want in on the pulsating thrill ride of being a pop craze Patreon, you know what to do. Keyboard, patreon.com slash chart music. Pledge, pledge, and pledge some more if you can. It's your money that we want, and your money we shall have. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! So, this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to December the 27th, 1974. And I have to say that for reasons both musical, televisual and personal, there's a a definite end of era tinge about this one, particularly when you compare it to the 1972 and 1973 episodes we've already covered on chart music. I mean, there's no T-Rex, there's no Sweet, no Wizard, no Cassidy. Slade is still in there, but only for a song they did in 1973. Uh, you know, there's a few acts hanging in there, but you can't help but feel that the wind has changed. Mm, yeah, I mean, obviously, I was 12 at the time. And I didn't really feel that kind of sense of declinism, whatever. You know, this is my pop life. It was almost like a kind of a peak, really. Mm. But yeah, I guess you can look at it now and think that a certain 70s is on the point of ending. Yeah, mm. yeah this is really the, the first time in the pop era where the general feeling is hey everything's quite shit now mm. <laughs> you know like the mm. entire history of pop music up to this point is all about freshness yeah. and optimism and modernity yeah. and some definition of progress mm. and now suddenly over the last year or two all of that's dried up and for the first time there's no excitement about living now that's right there's a kind of hiatus and i think that what fills that is the first great pang of nostalgia for early rock and roll yes. and there's so much of that yeah. around from about 73 onwards because ultimately you can see the national mood like the effects of the oil crisis and what it mm. means for the west and all filtering through to this place here pop music where consumerism and the imagination meet and both those things have been affected by the gloom you know Mm -hmm. and it's partly that and it's partly just well you can see everything has gone a bit shit hasn't it Mm. you know Mm. it's funny once the technological optimism and the thrill of prosperity uh, uh, drops away uh you realize that in 1974, you're still in a Philip Larkin, Hancock's Half Hour world mm. where people sit by a lamp in a cold room in silence, writing each other letters mm. to, to break up the solitude, you know. And on a Sunday or after about 10 o'clock at night, there's literally nothing to do mm. except inhale the damp, you know. So there's all that lost energy and curdled optimism if you listen to the lovely song 1974 by the very occasionally great robin hitchcock it's in there Mm. and you can see why things felt like that Mm. unlike a lot of easy assumptions about pop cultural eras i think this is true there's a Mm. bit of a sense of decline Mm. because it's verified by pretty much everyone who was there or at least everyone who'd lived through the years immediately before this and could feel the sudden difference maybe if you were 15 at the time it Mm. might have seemed exciting although i'm not too sure about that because i was 15 in 1987 
which was the 1974 of the 80s. And I was acutely aware of how dead things were. There was this sort of sense of, you know, decline is and indicating despair or whatever, and just especially going on into the mid-70s. The only thing was it's, it's, it's more sort of cultural, it's more a sort of latitude, it's more a mood. It's not really, I mean, in, in lots of ways... You know, there was a bit more political justice and a bit more equality back in the 70s in the UK. And there was more job security. Housing was cheaper. We had sort of public services intact. Mm. Nonetheless, people did feel a little bit sort of jaded, certainly, and that things weren't as good as they were. And yet, you know, there was an index at a time when people like, I mean, going on later into the 70s, when, you know, Lindsay DePaul or whatever, singing about where are we rock bottom and say, well, fucking mm. hell, you know, I'll show you how we start drilling in the 21st century, I can fucking tell you, you know. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, there was some. There was a survey done in 1976 that suggested that people were actually at their happiest yes. overall in, 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 since the since the end of the Second World War. You know, mm-hmm. so and and actually, sometimes although there was a lot of that mood, and I think a lot of it was sort of fed into punk and things like that. It was also coming from the top, though. I mean, a lot of it was like sort of shareholders pissed off that, like you know, that they weren't getting the kind of returns that they are, or people having to pay the kind of tax that they were under sort of Wilson and all that kind of stuff. You know, they were generating mm-hmm. a lot of the kind of Britain going to the dogs type stuff at the same time as this but yeah i mean what taylor says is it is true certainly having said that yeah if you watch anything that's genuinely representative of the mid-1970s like this top of the pops for instance you do get the feeling that in some ways this was a more advanced culture than we live in today Mm -hmm. and yet in others it was a complete shit show well yeah and it's the tug between those two things that makes this period Mm. compelling despite everything Mm. so if i were to say chaps the music of 1974 what is immediately going to fly out of those musically minded mouths of yours craft work i suppose but um that's something that's kind of happening beneath the surface really um mm. in terms of what's happening at that you know as it were surface level it's a lot of people still slightly mouldering i guess from the early 70s is mm. yeah it was like the the energy in pop has dropped off all the interest in music being made is not in the charts it's like we always say the only reliably good music in mid-70s british charts is is black american music mm. yes british pop is kind of in the doldrums a bit mm. and all the interesting music being made is away from the chart mm. i think in this episode we're going to see confirmation that glam is now morphing into mock and roll Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the year that Show Waddy Waddy won new faces. Yeah. Mm. The big band of the moment is a definite throwback. Mm. It's all going that way. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a strange time. Mm. And like, look, forgive me if I go on a bit again. No, 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 go ahead, sir. These podcasts aren't just fabulously long because we're self-indulgent fucks. It's because <laughs> the only way to get any sense out of these relics of a recent semi-recognisable past is to live with them, bolt the doors, and gradually torture out the true essence of the time. Because <laughs> if you rush it, you end up falling back on all the myths and all the... Yeah misleading cliches you know about discontinued sweets and happy smiling kids playing out on the main road Mm. you know with (laughs) nuclear waste and crocodiles and every single one of those kids who's still here to say well i survived really did survive Mm. every single one of them but looking back this period seems somehow weirder and more foreign than 10 years earlier Mm, do you know what i mean even though this is within my lifetime the atmospheres and the vistas that i can personally remember seem stranger and more alien than a lot of stuff that i can't Mm. you know 
because this is like some of my earliest memories are from this time and when i think back it's really hard to relate to now just everyday stuff that's far stranger when you think about it years later than any crazy fashions or anything like mm. that like people driving around in the mist in cars that were just metal inside <laughs> yes. you know you know you get in a car now and it's all sculpted plastic and upholstery and little screens which light mm. up and stuff. Yeah, bags. And the interiors of these cars look like the inside of an old spitfire <laughs> it was just metal <laughs> like you might as well have had a like an oxygen mask hanging under the front seat you know what i mean <laughs> i remember when i was in the car with me dad round about this time to go and see me nonna and grandpa yeah. i'd climb up off the back seat um didn't have to take the seat belt off because fucking hell he wears a seat belt yeah and i'd just climb up on the parcel rack at the back and just lie there yeah 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 and uh, <laughs> dad didn't say anything yeah <laughs> i remember being in my uncle's car driving down the street and the cold wind would be streaming into the car through a hole in the side where a bit of the bodywork had just rusted away <laughs> you just sit there in the draft with your coat on toggled right up to the neck you know <laughs> like sitting at home christmas 2022 and the suspension was like everything in the car was on its own spring <laughs> so when you went over a pothole or if you had to drive over a field which in those days people sometimes did everything was moving in different directions <laughs> inside the car mm. as the outside rolled around on its axles it's like a carnival sideshow mm. you know, if you're over mm. five foot eight the top of your head would just bang off the roof yes if there hadn't been a roof you'd have been propelled out of the car <laughs> because as you say mm. seat belts were for homosexuals yes yeah. god I, I remember um eight of us me my two brothers my mum and dad and uh, my uncle and aunt and cousin eight of us all traveling out to scarborough from leeds in a mini fucking hell i mean you, you wouldn't do you wouldn't do that these days thank christ <laughs> i tell you what as well speaking of cold the lack of modern style properly warm clothes right because a, a, a lot of which hadn't been invented no. so they just had to wear layers <laughs> you see someone in a string vest with a shirt and tie over that with a jumper over that with a suit over that with a leather jacket over that with a big mm. overcoat over that without anything mm. done up so around the arms you'd have about nine layers of clothing but in the front channel like the breastplate area there's almost nothing between <laughs> frost and flesh it's no wonder people are always getting a cold on the chest mm. but mm. It, it, trivial stuff like that seems non-trivial to me because when i think back to my earliest memories that's what they feel like you know mm. it's all about the cold of buildings and the smell of mildew and terrible wartime fibers you know at that time really did feel drab and evil even though a lot mm. of people were having an awful lot of fun mm. you know it's sad i was watching an old daytime cookery program from the mid 70s the other week Ooh. and i got a bit upset when they were talking about some recipe or other and the older lady presenting said or you can use black currant leaves they'll be coming along soon and i could only think of this battalion of elderly dying people you know still living by the seasons born yeah. in the 19th century their houses all silent and cold at night you know all of them soon gone was it worth oh. it merry christmas <laughs>
Yeah. I'm not saying at all that this episode is cat shit. I mean, there are a lot of bangers in the trifle of pop oh, yeah. that's about to be served up to us. But I do feel this does mark the end of the golden age of Top of the Pops. And it's going to be a long winter until the Aventis come along and perk everything up again. Mm-hmm. So we better enjoy mm. it while it's here, eh, chaps? Yeah. Indeed. Onward! Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, John Stonehouse, the disgraced former Postmaster General and current Labour MP for Walsall North, who was believed to have been eaten by a shark in Miami, (laughs) has been arrested in Melbourne on Christmas Eve by local police who thought he was Lord Lucan. (laughs) The IRA round off the year by bombing Oxford Street, Harrods, a pub in Wiltshire, a Dixon's in Bristol, and also find time to lob a bomb through Ted Heath's living room window. The Australian city of Darwin has practically been flattened by Cyclone Tracy on Christmas Day, destroying 70% of its buildings, 80% of its houses, and causing £4.2 billion worth of damage in today's rubbish money. Gerald Ford, the still relatively new president of the USA, reveals in an interview that he believes 1975 will be a year of crisis, with a new war in the Middle East and the complete economic breakdown of a European country allied to America, who he won't name. It's us poor cunts. (laughs) There's been a mass arrest of over 150 Santas in Denmark who went on a shoplifting rampage in Copenhagen and gave out their booty to passers-by in the shopping centre as a protest against commercialism. Mick Taylor has left the Rolling Stones after five years, and rumours abound that his replacement will be Ronnie Wood of the Facers. Pope Paul VI is nearly brained by falling rubble on Christmas Day when the holy door is open for him during some ceremony or other. (laughs) Jack Benny has died at the age of eight, eh? John Pertwee has recorded his final episode of Doctor Who and will regenerate into Tom Baker next week. Outrage has broken out all over the country over the latest tour by Britain's most controversial group, with angry parents leading walkouts at the general rubbishness of the stage show, The Wombles of Wimbledon Common. (laughs) According to the complaints which have been aired right across the media, the kiddies were unable to hear anything through the masks of the actors, there weren't enough Womble songs in the show, and a lack of padding in the costumes made the sound. Southwest London eco warriors look positively anorexic. <laughs> after the Liverpool show closed down after one performance, <laughs> the final straw came in Belfast when angry dads bum rushed the stage, <laughs> demanding their money back. Oh <laughs> Meanwhile, 
The Malcolm McLaren of the group, Great Uncle Bulgaria, has been subjected to a full body search at Heathrow Airport while dressed <laughs> as Santa on his way to the Lord Mayor of Belfast Christmas party, brandishing a suspicious looking Christmas cake. After they made him do a dance and pick up some stray litter and put it in a bin, the customs officers were satisfied as to who he was and he was allowed to board the plane. <laughs> Uh, I'm in full sympathy with the angry dads of Belfast because I've been through that. When my nephew was five years old, yeah. he was well into Nodder. Oh, and they were doing Noddy the stage show at the Ice Arena in Nottingham. Mm. So I got tickets for it and I took him out. I, I didn't tell him where we were going. I thought, you know what? Well, I'll just walk around and he's just going to bump into Nodder mm. and he's going to think I'm the fucking king of the uncles. Mm. So anyway, we're walking around. We do a few bits and bobs and we get to the Ice Arena and I said, oh, I hear that in that building there's someone you'd probably like to see. Shall we go in? So I sat him down in the fucking ice arena mm-hmm. and the lights come up and there's Noddy and Big Ears and everything dancing on the stage and I'm just sat back, arms folded, job well done. I look down, he looks absolutely disgusted by the whole thing. Oh. And I say, hey, look, Jamie, there's there's Noddy. What do you mean? He turned around and looked at me with a look of pure fucking hatred and he just said this makes me mad (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't work out why it was i think it was something to do with the fact that he knew that noddy wasn't human sized because he fitted on a small screen television Mm. and he he realized that he was all a cod and i've got a photo of him at half time and he didn't want to go back in i was was just like look i paid fucking stupid amount of money i can't afford on this you little cunt you're gonna go back in there you're to enjoy it and he's just leaning against the wall with his head against the brickwork in absolute defeat (laughs) oh he's never allowed to forget the little fucker (laughs) but the big news this week is santa's bin What did you get, chaps? Do you know what? I was thinking of this, because I can remember it pretty clear. 1975 was Crossfire year. No. 1972 was Monopoly year. 1973 was Cluedo year. But I can't, for the life of me, remember. I think I would have got, obviously, the latest and the sort of Top of the Pop series, of course, you know, for one of my grandmas. It said on the back of the sleeve, building up a collection that will make you the envy of your (laughs) neighbourhood. I wasn't the envy of my neighbourhood, I can assure you. How could you be the envy of your neighbourhood? I don't know. You know, somehow or other, you know, the entire neighbourhood would be kind of, you know, green and wistful. <gasps> See that David Stubbs there? He's got a full set of the Top of the Pops collection. Bastard. He's got 20 LPs in total. Fucking hell. <laughs> That's all I can remember, really. You know, mm. it would have been absolutely mint, whatever it was. I mean, yeah. I'm sure not blanking out or messing some disappointment, you know. Mm. Well, I was two, so I suspect my parents were still taking advantage of the fact mm. that, that age. you can just lob anything at a kid. Go, ah, it's Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So party seven, you know. Have the wrapping paper from my pack of aftershave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. all crunchy, fine. crunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Freddie Mercury raising a glass of champagne. On the cover of Music Star, Alvin Stardust dressed up as Santa. On the cover of Radio Times, Frank Spencer holding the empty half of a cracker. On the cover of TV Times, Tommy Steele's Hans Christian Andersen reading a book to some kiddies. Hmm. That's a bit fucking cerebral for TV Times, isn't it? Yeah. The number one single this week is Lonely This Christmas by Mud. The number one LP is Elton John's Greatest Hits. 
David Essex by David Essex is at number two, and Rolling by the Bay City Rollers is at number three. Over in America, the number one single is Cats in the Cradle by Harry Shapin, and the number one LP is Elton John's Greatest Hits. It's only Rock and Roll by the Rolling Stones at number two, War Child by Jethro Tull at number three. So, me boys, what were we doing in December of 1974? I was 12 years old. I was in the first year at um, St. Michael's College, a very sort of cold, it's like, institute in um, Headingley in Leeds. Mm. And you know what? I was doing pretty well. I was getting pretty much top marks across the board, you know, across all subjects, except chemistry. It was a bit rubbish at that yeah. and I was in the football team the only thing that really you know to sort of make me the complete chap as it were at that age was the question you know was I cock of 1A you know, that was my class you know was I like best mm. fire you know could I knack anyone you know that they put up against me <laughs> trouble was I was so well liked and popular that no one ever picked a fight with me so I never got to test my uh, strength you know that's uh, that's the sadness of it walking around the playground with a full set of top of the pops LPs under your arm no doubt exactly yeah yeah not just the envy of my neighbourhood yeah definitely yeah. it was pretty grim I mean I, I had to get two buses from my little village of Barrack and Elmer into Headingley and Leeds and Ooh. you just every morning especially and about in the winter you know you just got you know the full gamut of like the David Peace like toxicity of 70s leads you know this and I guess that's generally why you know the colorization of pop had such appeal even though it was only manifested on a black and white TV we don't have colors up here absolutely yeah, but all of that music springs from the kind of the greyest dourish shitholes of like you know Cardiff to Wolverhampton whatever mm. it's like that photo of Adrian Street you know the wrestlers glammed to the absolute nines yes. with his coal miner dad and his mates at the mine shaft and I mean the point about that isn't that Adrian Street has been on this long, long journey far away from this place, but he's born out of this place. He actually represents a reaction to this place. It's a com- mm. completely appropriate picture in that respect. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, that was me. Really, that was that. Taylor. Uh, lobbing cow and gate at the wall <laughs> rocking a bear suit fine time I'm six at this point and I remember exceedingly little about Christmas Day 1974 the only presence I can remember is getting a cap gun with no caps in it and a big hunk of soap on a rope shaped like a womble which never got used it just sat in my bedroom out of the box until it gathered dust and looked even more like a womble it was it was hairy by that point we would have gone to me nana and grandpa's on christmas day and i do remember that i had a singing contest with my sister on my grandpa's brand new tape recorder uh, which i lost and had a screaming fit about so that was christmas <laughs> ruined but the main thing that's hanging over me is the knowledge that in one week's time we were going to be moving out of the house in ice and green that was the only house i ever knew because they were about to pull it down and we're moving into a new building top valley mm. just a few days before this episode uh, me and my mum went down to a building site to see the house and we were absolutely convinced that they'd given us the wrong number because you know we were looking at it and we, we couldn't see an outside toilet and it looked like it had a bathroom <laughs> and central heating so my mum went back to the foreman and said you've given me the wrong number dog this can't be where we're moving to and he said no 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 this is it here's the key just went in it was like fucking hell i was convinced we'd suddenly become posh for some (laughs) reason and as the council were waiting to pull the entire street down as soon as possible they let us in earlier and we're moving in next week that's great but it's only just beginning to dawn on me this week that 
everything in the world is going to change. So there's going to be no more Scott Home Infant School, which I absolutely loved. No more Rudy guys in the school dinner time discos. And I do believe that this episode marks the last ever time that I'll be going round the house of Tony Bones' mum, who is, after all, the patron saint of chart music. Yeah. So, yeah, this is landmark times Mm. for me. Still going up in the world. Oh, yeah, upwardly mobile, mate. Sounds like nowadays, but in reverse. Mm. (laughs) Yes. I mean, we've been on the waiting list for Ice and Green Flats for years, and six months later, after this episode went out, Nationwide broadcast an entire episode live from Ice and Green Flats, hosted by Frank Boff. And he called it the most notorious housing scheme in the country, with blues parties going off and prostitutes operating on the balconies. So, yeah, sliding doors Mm. and all that. We could have lived there. I don't know how long Frank Boff stuck around after the filming, but, you know. (laughs) So maybe that's why 1974 seems such a kind of year of sort of transition for you. Oh, definitely, yeah. Mm. We've already talked about sitcoms, and uh, apart from the cast uprooting and going to Australia, the other dominant motif of sitcoms and film versions of sitcoms from that era is everything's being pulled down and everyone's living in new flats. Yeah, or the Lightly Lads film in 76. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just my dear. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, the end of Till Death is Do Part film as well. Exactly, Same yeah. Same thing right at the end there. Yeah, it just seemed like the whole world was tearing itself down and rebuilding itself. Mm. You know, it's like we were living in a very small-scale Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pop Craze Youngsters, it's round about this time that we go into the crap room, have a riffle through a few boxes, and pull out an issue of the music press from this week. And this time I've gone for the NME... 28th of December 1974 Would you like to come with me on this journey chaps? Indeed, take our hands On the cover a model called the Sensational Lucia holding a cardboard cut out of Mick Jagger and an arm full of t-shirts for a four-page review of the year which is a bit boring, it's just quotes and none of the quotes are interesting so I've not bothered with it Mm. In the news After last week's announcement that Ian Hunter has signed a solo deal with CBS, it's official. Mott the Hoople have split up. Mick Ronson, who joined the band earlier this year, has confirmed that he's also leaving for America to work as Hunter's musical director. The three remaining members have announced that they're keeping the name and carrying on, and they do so right up to 1980, with exceedingly diminishing returns. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit weird. It's a bit yeah. Wombles-like, really, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure that the kind of antipathy they must have got from the angry dads and whatever, when they realised mm. that you know, this isn't Mott the Hoople as they'd um, anticipated when they bought their tickets. Mm. Oh, this yeah. is not the Hoople. Indeed, oh, not the Hoople. very good. Yeah, yeah. The next Osmonds World Tour, which would have taken in Southampton, Birmingham, Glasgow and Hammersmith Odeon, as well as 12 other countries, is off a mere two weeks after it was announced. According to a spokesman, it's down to unforeseen logistics problems. Mm. All venues in the UK bar Birmingham have been sold out and refunds are currently being processed. But girls throughout the nation are currently being consoled by the news of new tours by the likes of Lindisfarne, Argent, Backman Turner Overdrive, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and John Entwistle's Arcs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Great news for the heads in the new year, though. The BBC have announced that the old grey whistle test is being moved to a peak time slot and being extended out to 50 whole minutes. Look out for Man and Fumble in the studio in the first episode on January the 11th. Mm. David Bowie has granted a rare TV interview to Dick Cavett in America and Lisa Robinson has been given the opportunity to review it in the news pages. From his appearance, Boe is not a well man. He's thin, almost ravaged beyond belief. There was something depressingly sad about this TV appearance. <laughs> I'm frankly amazed that Main Man allowed this thing on the air. Uh, oh, we've seen that, haven't mm, we? Sounds mm. like somebody needs a crash course in myth-making. Mm. <laughs> and the main points from the teaser's gossip column is that Elvis is about to announce a two-year world tour to commemorate his 40th birthday. He doesn't. <laughs> The three degrees are posed for penthouse with strategically placed props in front of their bits. Keith Moon is shopping a film about a day in his life around Hollywood. Uh. Roger Daltrey is taking fencing lessons for his forthcoming film Liz to Mania. <laughs> Chrysalis Records officers have had all their windows blown out by the IRA bombing of Selfridges. And Motown are about to sign up an advertising executive called Chinga Chavin and put out his LP Country Porn, which features tracks such as Tit Stop Rock. Sit, 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 <laughs> sit on my face and cum stains on the pillow, open brackets, where your face used to be, close brackets. <laughs> Sadly, the deal never comes off and the LP ends up being sold by mail order in the pages of Penthouse in 1976. <laughs> in fine company. In the features section, well, Chris Salowich nips across the channel to see the most controversial gig in France's Istre. Angry parishioners called for the purification of Reims Cathedral last week, claiming that the 12th century building was desecrated during a pop concert last Friday. They said the concert by Tangerine Dream, supported by Nico, had been attended by 6,000 youths who left litter everywhere, smoked hashish and urinated in the cathedral. <laughs> But Father Bernard Guru of the local diocese stuck up for the kids when he said, It is true that some you smoke pot to communicate more with the sound of Tangerine Dream. It is also true that some others, because of the need that prevailed, found it necessary to urinate against the pillars. It is also true that some, because of the cold in the cathedral, were seen folded in each other's arms and kissing. But it is also true that 6,000 youths, staying three hours in the dark, stretched out on the floor, enjoyed the music, and could have caused more serious damage and behaved in a more disgraceful manner. I mean, he said, just, said, just lay on some toilets, bins and heating, you twats. Yeah. Salowitz reports that it was one of the most profoundly vivid and elevating occasions in his life, and it was dead good when Nico did Janitor of Lunacy. Tony Stewart drops in on the top of the pop studio to talk to the new hot pop sensation, Ralph McTell, <laughs> whose Streets of London is currently the Christmas number six, and according to Stewart, sticks out of the glittering array of personalities in the charts like an erection at a eunuch's ball. 
Mm-hmm. Although Ralph has made an effort by changing his denim flares for some, quote, Carnaby Street trousers, he gets asked when he's going to change into his costume by a floor manager and is bemused when someone else congratulates him on his comeback when this is his first hit single. <laughs> After thanking Noel Edmonds for playing Streets of London constantly on his breakfast show, he McTells Stewart that the song is eight years old and was actually written in Paris in order to book up a mate he was busking with there. And after it appeared on his debut album in 1969, he got sick to death of people asking for it at gigs. Although he dislikes being called a folk singer, he tells Stuart that he's too old at 30 to get into rock. I wouldn't want to shake my arse around and wear silly clothes, he says. <laughs> yeah, that would never do down at the Alphabet Zoo. I wouldn't stand for that sort of thing. <laughs> Long tail wagging, flippers flapping, feathers flying too. Charles Shaw Murray schleps over to East Grinstead to check in on what Woody Woodman's has been up to since the disillusions of the spiders from Mars and discovers that he's crashing round Mike Garson's house. He looks a bit like Gilbert O'Sullivan these days. He's been playing in a sort of bands. His latest band is called Flight and he's brought along a friend to the interview the Public Relations Officer for Scientology UK, who takes over very early on and renders the rest of the article unreadable. Uh, him and a mellow candle. John Ingham finds himself in a hotel in Frankfurt having a chat with Alvin Lee, formerly of 10 years after, and now touring his new band Alvin Lee & Co. across Europe. After playing a gig populated by the residents of the local US Army bases who are all smoking massive spliffs and are being told to fuck off by Lee when they keep asking for I'm going home, he gets stuck into the Brandy Alexanders and tells Ingham about what it was like to work on George Harrison's forthcoming LP, Dark Horse. You ought to see his place. It's a 100-room abbey, a real Victorian folly. The fireplaces have incantations carved into them and the light fittings of friars with their noses as the switchers. <laughs> and Mick Farron revisits Rodney Bingenheimer's English discotheque and laments the end of an era. For a couple of years, Bingenheimer's was the high spot of the international sequence set. Britain might throw up the bands. New York has Max's in 82 where the glam comes with a sinister perversion. But at Rodney's, the children rolled in straight from the suburbs and put on their tinsel before they'd even reached puberty. At 12, they were getting down, and by 15, they were expected to be jaded and world-weary. But it's all begun to fade. On a recent Saturday night, there were only a handful of suburban 12-year-olds in their third-stage glitwear. They had the sad expression of kids who'd looked out and chosen the place when nothing was happening. Oh, oh dear. Those... Playground bang around. <laughs> yeah, those poor children, weren't they? really missed out single reviews in the chair this week is bob woffenden and he's got an absolute dos job as it appears that only three singles have been released this week 
His single of the week, Boogie on Reggae Woman by Stevie Wonder, deserves the title, but Woffenden claims it works better on the LP Fulfillingness as First Finale, an album which has divided opinion in the NME office. He reckons you should take the 55p you were going to spend on the single and lump it in with the £2.50 required to buy the album, which he thinks is skill. Next up is Crying Over You by Ken Booth, his follow-up to the number one smash Everything I Own. This is what reggae sounds like when they balderise it for the English market. Sort of filleted stuff, which gives the genre a bad name, says Bob. Booth's a good singer, all right. It's just that the only concession he makes to the authentic reggae sound is to have someone half-heartedly rattling a jar of whole black peppers in the right-hand speaker. And what's the point of reggae in stereo? (laughs) He also points out that the B-side is an answer song to the Three Degrees called Now You Can See Me Again. Think about it, man. (laughs) But it's a coat down for Bowie protégé Donna Gillespie and her single Really Love The Man. Donna, whose image as murky sex kitten has carefully been fostered by main man through stunning symbolist photos with pussies, unfortunately delivers this in the sort of womanly sincerity adopted by such as wholesome Diane Solomon. It's watery and wimpy and makes the Donnerous tigress scene seem as thoroughly phony as it no doubt is oh only three Ooh. singles man that's rubbish oh, no. in the lp review section well luckily there's plenty of new album releases this week and the main review is given over to flashes from the archives of oblivion by roy harper it's the strongest bid harper has made yet to reach a mass audience with his intensely accurate insights into love illusion and conflict says angela arrigo The album, if you already love Harper, is indispensable. If you've never listened to him, it's the best possible introduction. If you can't make your mind up about him, if that's possible, give it to your mum for Christmas. (laughs) Skin I'm In, the first new LP from Chairman of the Board in two years, is finally out over here and Bob Fisher has a good froth over it. (laughs) They have neatly combined the best of Funkadelic, Stevie Wonder and the Isleys and managed to come up with a combination of rock and soul that might well influence their influencers. Despite their presence in the UK for the next few weeks, this album may still get lost in the Christmas rush. Don't be a loser, because this is one hell of an exciting record. Reviews didn't used to say much, did they? No. But it's a coat down for Desolation Boulevard by The Sweet, in which they make the effortless transition from technically competent but artistically suspect teeny bopper band to technically competent but artistically suspect heavy band, says Charles Shaw Murray. At one point, it looked like they were the only British band with the potential to be the UK edition of the MC5. But instead, they've decided to become budget in heavy clothes. There's only one way to save the sweet now. Send them all copies of Back in the USA and somehow convince them that this is what is required. Mm. Oh, 
dear. A perspective Ooh. lost to time, somewhat. <laughs> Sweet as the British MC5. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac's major problem since losing Peter Green has been one of identity, reckons Steve Clark in his review of Heroes Are Hard To Find, where he notes that they've been leaning too hard on their new guitarist Bob Welsh and have put out a tasteful LP which doesn't come anywhere near their Peter Green heyday. While this record isn't by any means a disaster, it doesn't stand even a remote chance of re-establishing Fleetwood Mac's following in Britain. Mm -hmm. Hijack by Eamon Dull Eleven (laughs) is seized upon by John Ingham as he's always like them, but he comes away from the experience disappointed and bereft. Most of the songs would find a more useful occupation as background music in a Berlin wimpy bar, he says. (laughs) But he likes three of them, including Traveller, which he calls the most unredeemingly repetitious thing since Venus in Furs. It's great! David, your thoughts? Well, I think with Amandil Krautrock, generally, always go for the early stuff. I was actually going to call that book that, actually. Always go for the early stuff. A history of Krautrock. (laughs) But there you go. Curtis Mayfield has put out his sixth solo LP, Got to Find a Way, but Neil Spencer doesn't reckon it because he's a fucking knob end. <laughs> it might be just dandy for cruising down the freeway with the throb of the V8 barely discernible above the patter of funk on the car stereo, but for sheer emotional concentration, you could probably squeeze more from the two and a half minutes of Gypsy Woman. Such judgments may seem severe for a record which is by no means bad. It's just that one expects more from one of the most hallowed figures of black music. And this LP is just another disappointment. Wrong, wrong, Mm. wrong. It's a fucking brilliant album. Mm. Ain't no love lost. So you don't love me. Can't find a way. No, fuck off, mate. It's me. Mm. In the gig guide this week. Wow. David could have seen Kilburn and the High Roads at the Hope and Anchor, Brinsley Swatch at Dingwalls, the Edgar Broughton Band at the Marquee, Rupee Edwards at the Edmonton Ballroom, or the Heavy Metal Kids at the Marquee. But probably didn't. <sighs> Definitely didn't. Taylor could have seen Ken Booth and the Cimarrons at the Birmingham Locarno, or the Steve Gibbons Band at Incognito. Mm. Fucking hell, he's always playing Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. With his disappointingly human band. Exactly, yeah. Neil could have seen Band Called Charlie at the Coventry Novotel Motel, or nipped out to Dudley to catch Ace at JB's. Mm. Sarah could have seen Medicine Head at Scunthorpe Baths. <laughs> Desmond Decker at Dewsbury, my place. Brotherhood of Man's week-long residency at the Sheffield Cavendish. Or Millican and Nesbitt's all weaker at the Wakefield Theatre. Oh, Christ. Mm. Al could have seen UFO at the Boat Club. Or trekked out to Worksop to see Hello at the Carousel Club. Or Sweaty Better at the Golden Diamond in Sutton in Ashfield. Fucking hell. I think that was the most 70s sentence I've ever read. <laughs> Simon could have seen Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets at Cardiff Top Rank, Sassafras at the HTV Social Club, or gone to his future home to see the old sailor and fumble at Brighton Top Rank. And there's so few listings this week, the enemy have had to fill the space with photos of breasts. Different times. <laughs> <laughs> In the 
letters page. Well, Charles Shaw Murray is in the chair for this week's gas bag, and the lead-off letter is concerned with the BBC's latest round of cuts to its music wing. So, the rock fan gets it in the codpiece again. So, the BBC intends to scrap sounds of the 70s and also four of its edge-of-the-road DJs. Great stuff, aren't it? Says J.A. Vine of Orpington. (laughs) This and shorter hours will save the BBC £300,000 in the next year to fritter on the overblown salaries of such playlist flunkies as Blackburn and Diddy David. Didn't the rock revolution achieve anything Thing in the broadcasting <laughs> fold. Look at television. Go on, look at it. We still have the disposable but not inexpensive prancing of top of the pops at peak time. In contrast to mini budget, shove it on any time, old grey whistle test. As I can't get off on rave teeny bop singles or the middle of the road yawn trip, here are a few questions to broadcasters. Am I in a minority of one? Do you ever read music paper polls? Who sells more records and concert tickets? The rock giants or the middle of the road artists who hog the media? Is there a TV chief among you with the guts to put on a Zeppelin or Purple concert at peak time against a Des O'Connor show and compare the viewing figures? Huh. <laughs> I don't think they compare very well. I think mm. either one have been watching Des O'Connor. Yeah, and, and first compare Peter Grant's proposed contract mm, yes, exactly, yes. Des O'Connor. <laughs> yeah. Having followed Roxy Music for years, we were delighted to hear that Brian Ferry was going to do a concert at the Odeon, writes Lena and Christine of Birmingham. The two of us planned to start queuing 24 hours beforehand to be sure of getting front row seats. We were then shattered to find that tickets would be on sale by postal application only because of the riots in the faces queue the previous week. We duly sent our money off weeks before anyone else we knew and then weeks later we received our money back. We are outraged that we should have to suffer like this just because a couple of thousand imbecilic faces fans got pissed and beat a few coppers up (laughs) everyone knows that roxy and ferry fans are to quote the man himself la creme de la creme and therefore would have behaved very well while (laughs) queuing (laughs) poor lena and christine man Mm. yeah and just see lena and christine queuing there for 24 hours in their nan's fur coat and (laughs) and fascinator Kilburn and the High Roads got a feature in The Enemy the other week, but Deadhead Paul, representing both the Kingston Rough Kids and the Battersea Grammar Mob, is not at all happy about the (laughs) attitude they displayed toward them. First of all, Nick Kent said that they're becoming last year's thing, which is a typical redundant, trendy expression anyhow. Now, Pete Erskine joins him with a rather vacuous interview with Ian Drury. Yes, you could at least spell his name right. Erskine replies that it wasn't his fault that Pi Records unexpectedly demanded that he interviewed the entire band, which meant a lot of awe sticking in where everyone talked over each other and nothing of note was said, and points out that his name actually is Ian Jure, so just fuck off with yourself, mate. <laughs> 
straight demotion in the Kingston Rough Kids and the Battersea Grammar Mob there, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, one tip, never interview the whole band at once. Oh, I bet you've had to deal with that oh, loads of times, haven't you? Oh, it was a shite, it really was. It's like five against one, basically. Yeah, it's either just babble, or mm. it's the opposite, that, that each of them says less than if they mm. were together because their mates are looking at them and they don't yeah. feel stupid. Oh, that's absolutely. Yeah. That that happened really, really bad to me with the Pixies. They didn't say oh. anything. You could see them just looking at each other cons- worried that what they might say, you know, might sort of something I'll take issue with, yeah. So, yeah. so everybody's really constipated. And, like, you know, basically bands, certainly back in my day, they treated interviews like they were under police caution in any case, you know, so it's <laughs> made it even worse. On a happier note, a staid veteran of the psychedelic generation of Newcastle on Tyne... <laughs> wishes to thank Mick Farron for his piece on Hawkwind in New York. It's nice to read a pleasant Hawkwind review for a change, and it's a refreshing change also to know that at least one band haven't turned into a bunch of neatly coiffured glitter and makeup poofs. Are you reading this, Ian Hunter? Keep it up, Mick. Uh, That's uh, nice, apart from the poofs. (laughs) When did poofs change to puffs? Uh, Yeah. I I mean, Private Eye always used to use poofs, you know, with a V, uh, in the 60s. It went to poofs to poof to puff. Puffs, yeah. I mean, what I it was, you know, Windsor Davis. You know, what's up with you, bunch of puffs? You know, yeah. and, you know, I thought, Mum, it was there was yeah. no poofs then. No, yeah. and it, it was never poofs when I was at school. Yes, there's always poofs in Monty Python as well. Yeah, Graham mm. Chapman always referred to himself as a as a poof. Mm. Maybe it's a class thing. Mm. A Stones fan from Seaford wishes to pass on his regards to Mick Taylor on his departure from the band, wishes him the best of luck in the future, and hopes that the Stones will be touring in 1975. Tina Short of Stratford coats down Bob Edmonds' review of Elton John's greatest hits for writing that one of the tracks is Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying when it's actually Don't Let the Sun Go Down on there. <laughs> Sammy Saturated of Glasgow asks if we've ever noticed that the end bit of The Gates of Delirium by Yes doesn't mm. half sound like the way we were, and it does. And D. Davis of Highgate writes, Incidentally, I once gave someone a piece of pot pomegranate mm. isn't that just mm. far out <laughs> 32 pages 10p i never knew there was so mm. much in it it's a mingy issue yeah. for the christmas one yeah, yeah, yeah. it's usually double sized yeah i know it's just like file it and fuck off down on the pub you know for the yeah. christmas piss up i was just thinking d davis of highgate my old uh, weed dealer years ago used to live in what he swore was the only hippie flat in highgate in the 70s may have been one of his mates there Ooh. boasting about his uh, pomegranate santaism <laughs> i'll tell you what hoofs hooves roof roofs yeah, yeah. it's a Maybe one of those, like you know, like you, like it's mm. technically correct. You can say fishes. Mm. Obviously, it's a loathsome word, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but phonetically, I definitely prefer poofs to poofs. You know, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else is on telly today? Well, BBC One commences at twenty-five past nine with a repeat of Mary Mungo and Midge, followed by a repeat of Top Cat. Then David Attenborough talks about how animals sort out somewhere to live and get their ends away in his Royal Institution lecture. <laughs> then, a load of kids from Lincolnshire go to the massive Centrale in France and fall down a lot in the documentary Ski School. 
That's followed by From China with Love, where Desmond Morris tells us why pandas are so skill. Then a massive hand reaches out from the cosmos and grabs the Starship Enterprise in a repeat of Star Trek. Then it's Bewitched, the news, and then it's a short blast of Grandstand, featuring racing from Kempton Park and Leopardstown, and a repeat of the fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman in Zaire. After that, we get the complete set of Planet Mm. of the Spiders, the Doctor Who adventure, followed by Brian Kant, John Craven, Bernard Cribbins, Tony Hart, Leslie Judd, Pat Kiesel, Johnny Morris... John Noakes, Peter Purvis, Michael Rodd, Valerie Singleton, Julie McStevens, Ross and Norris McWhorter, and Roy Castle in the All-Star Record Breakers. Then it's the news, and they've just finished regional news in your area. Fucking hell, what a lineup! That's my childhood, all right? Yeah, just to clarify, actually an edited feature-length compilation of the last John right. Pertwee Doctor Who story planet of the spiders mm. you know because someone's only going to yes. write in and complain <laughs> if we don't get that one bbc2 opens up at 11 a.m for play school with Derek griffiths and chloe ashcroft and then shuts down for six and a half hours and are about to come back with highlights from the second day's play of the third test between england and australia in melbourne ITV kicks off at half nine with schools programmes building the TV Times as a chance for parents and teachers to see a selection of programmes which have been shown at schools throughout the year which is actually a chance for ITV to pad out the morning schedule (laughs) followed by the best of Laurel and Arde Mr Trimble shows the youth how to make a crocodile out of some cardboard boxes. Then Leslie Crowther, Willie Rushton and Bill Tidy join Bob Monkhouse for an episode of Quick on the Draw. After the news, it's Cup Glory, the 1972 documentary narrated by Richard Attenborough about the FA Cup in its centenary year. Then it's the 1967 Tommy Still musical Half a Sixpence. Tommy Trinder, Margaret Lockwood, Jack Douglas and Douglas Bing join Dennis Norden to bang on about old stuff in Looks Familiar and they've just started an episode of the Proto Simpsons Hanna-Barbera cartoon Wait Till Your your Father father Gets gets home. Home fucking hell that is a very decent lineup for a friday isn't it yeah 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 football boxing mm. oh that Ali Foreman fight i mean that's fight of the century that i mean Oh, my God, he's won the title back at 32. Well, chaps, I do believe that the buffet that we're about to tuck into, which is the episode of Top of the Pops we're going to talk about, has been laid out nice, don't you think? Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting one. So, come and join us tomorrow for part two of episode 69 of Chart Music. And until then, ta very much, David Stubbs. Ta-ta. God bless you, Taylor Parks. All right. My name's Al Needham, imploring that you stay Pop crazed. Chart music.